0: Kim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Gustavo. Um, even in our little pre-meeting, I just, I fell in love. So I'm happy to happy to chat with you for an hour or, awesome. or so.
0: I would like to start probably somewhere different than you're expecting, hopefully. So when I was young, I grew up in Los Angeles and I had always, not always, but many, many years, I was just in love with Hollywood and, and dreaming of, you know, maybe one day I was going to be a director or a producer. Or how could I get involved? It never really materialized, but I have always carried with me a love for film, a love for good writing, a love for music. And so I, I want to just ask you questions. Like, you are such a wonderful content producer. Um, your films, your poetry, your writing, can you tell me a little bit about like what drew you to visual filmmaking?
1: Oh my gosh, you know, that, wow. (laughs) You know, I, I think I was born being a visual feeler, like the way I interpret the world is through my eyes. Um, I I almost rely too heavily on them, and I've known that from a really young age. I was a ballet dancer for about 15 years, and the music really, you know, pulled me in and grabbed my soul, but it was the shapes that the bodies would make and the shapes that they would make together on stage and just the aesthetic that... um, really uh, Balanchine was just one of my first first loves and Balanchine um, he never liked his dancers to wear tutus or any do big stages or any of the froofy stuff he liked to just see the black leotards and pink tights and then the lines that the bodies would create and that really was my first love of form and the visual um interpretation of form. So, however, <laughs> I also have a real biology um, oriented mind and very practical. And so my, you know, early studies took me into biology and under my undergrad, I was decided probably within the first week that I was gonna go to medical school and follow my dad and his footsteps and um, do something with the body that way. And I didn't know how dead I was inside until about, well, I dropped out once and then I re-entered medical school and then I dropped out again. The second time was more of a, not my choice. It was a, a, a physical issue that landed me in the emergency room. And I woke up in that emergency room that day and I thought, I'm done. I have to do something different with my life but I have no clue. And ballet had already been like, you know, was way behind me at that point. So it was, okay, if I'm not gonna pursue medical sciences, then um, what is it? And I ended up picking up my boyfriend's, he's my husband now, but my boyfriend's camera. And I took like a community college class. Um, I didn't even finish that class. I, I fell in love with photography and, the 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 visual storytelling like how I could look at one image and there is a photographer um, Gregory Crudson he's current and he would create these incredibly cinematic scenes where you'd see like a woman standing in her underwear at the sink and there's just like no light in the house and there's maybe a, a door is open and there's a cat running out just sort of these like what happened (laughs) you know and i really got pulled in to the the power of um of imagery to to evoke emotion and to evoke something more i wasn't interested in fashion imagery and um just you know pretty pictures i wanted an image to really tell a story So that's what led me into film. It wasn't, I never intended picking up a camera that I would end up having an earlier career as a photographer. And then when I got kind of bored, as you can might be able to tell, I'm a restless soul. (laughs) So I got like, okay, what's more? Like, I'm tired of just these still frames. What more can we do? And that um, led me to just on a whim, write a short script and start a Kickstarter um, to shoot a short film in uh, Palm Springs. And I found a willing crew of eight people to fly down there with me and dive in for three days and make a, just this ridiculous art film. Um, and I was hooked, I was totally hooked. Um, and that was my first experience of collaborative art uh, other than you know ballet of course but this was you know so different than me and my camera this was you had an actor you had the lighting guy you had the grip you had all these different people that were contributing and it felt like oh it, it felt like i was a kid again so going back to your original question the origins i think were always in me i was always a very visually captivated person, but it, it it went dormant for a long, long time. And when I was on set on that first short film, something just, I thought, how can be, you know, how can we do this for the rest of our lives? This is just <laughs> ecstatic. <laughs>
0: has, that, has that emotion continued through your subsequent projects?
1: Yes, to the point where I, you know, I have needed to learn to breathe more deeply. I have needed to learn how to work on anxiety, the, the anxiety, the excitement end of the spectrum of anxiety where I can just spin myself into so much passion and excitement that I lose sleep and then I burn myself. You know, I, I, I think I tend that fiery energy just is, is thrilled. Um, And now even with the work after the pandemic or through the pandemic, a lot of the filmmaking has been done, not interacting with people and having them submit their own self-recorded videos. I get equally as excited. I've told many of them that when, usually they submit through Dropbox. And as soon as I get my little Dropbox notification, I, it's like, if it's eight o'clock at night, it's like my husband has to strap me down to not run into the room <laughs> and watch it right then. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It Maybe it's just like I found my drug.
0: <laughs> it, it sounds like it. But then, so I'm curious is, does it ever, two questions, right? Does it ever feel like work in the sense that um, work is a a loaded term right because we associate it with slogging through something or something that's not necessarily fun we just have to get through it to get to the good stuff but what i mean by work is does it feel like does it feel like a job does it feel like something that you have to get through like for example maybe you don't enjoy the promotion side of it but you enjoy the actual filmmaking side of it does it does it feel that way or is there just general excitement and passion for you about the projects that you work on? Oh, I have my moments. Um, It's less about the
1: con, never. I would say it's never about the content, but definitely the the, um, marketing, the fundraising, the letdowns, the, the sense of feeling really alone still in this journey. Um, I don't know if you would put that in the work category, but I definitely have that, those periods where I'm thinking, who am I doing this for? You know, I, 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 all that passion, all that excitement, all those hours, I, I still have not paid myself a penny and it's been 20 months and I never believe any of my contractors should work for free. So I've been paying them and I, you know, in my mind, I justify it and say, well, I'm getting so much out of this, you know, and I am, I truly, truly am. There has to be some sort of sustainability, though, with it. And, and after 20 months, I, I a little bit more of my business hat is starting to come on and think, okay, we got to think about how to make this sustainable for not just my contractors, but for myself. Um, that's, that's, that's the the uglier part of the work side um, and the self-doubt that comes with that around, does anybody care what, yeah. what these messages are?
0: I feel I have a similar experience So the podcast I've been working on for six months, but we've really only been live, you know, to the world for three, but it's the, it's a similar feeling that I have. Um, we talked about a little bit earlier where it, it would, it's, how much impact am I having? When is it going to be sustainable? Um, does it? Yeah, you you feel you feel that loneliness, um, but actually doing the podcast, actually contacting the people, and establishing these great connections—it's tremendously rewarding, and it's a. I think that you just have for me. I just have to believe that. If I just keep going, you know, my goal is to push it for as long as I can. And as you do the work, you know, step by step by step, it's just going to keep building. Even if it's slow, it's going to happen at some point. At some point, there's an inflection point where things turn.
1: I, I absolutely agree. And gosh, I just read something this morning. Um, it was three tips from Warren Buffett on how to live a successful life. And His second one was believe in yourself, invest in yourself. That, I mean, Warren Buffett, who's like the biggest investor in the world. And he's saying number two thing you have to do to be successful in this life is invest in yourself, which, you know, he talked about engaging in the things that matter to you, educating yourself every day, learning from somebody different every day and, and just you know allow that when you go to bed at night know that everything you did in that day was an investment in in what you believe in and and okay if warren buffett says that's a recipe for success then
0: (laughs) i think we're we're on the right trajectory exactly the north star (laughs) the north star is there right we just have to keep following it Mm -hmm. um but i i wanted to to kind of transition so with the your, your unfixed project um i absolutely love it it is some of the most engaging emotionally rewarding content i have i have seen in a long time i put it like i told you before i'd put it right up there with trip camp with the best documentaries out there i mean and I, let's dive into that what inspired you to take on that project how did that how did that come about oh man
1: well i think i've said this before but it was selfish it, it started selfishly because i was lost i needed help and i needed to find people that were doing doing what i needed to learn which was how to live well with the challenges that I was experiencing. I developed um, this strange neurological disorder six years ago and it just bottomed me out. Um, I was incapable of looking at a screen. I, the sensation that co- accompanies this, it's called malday debarkment syndrome. It's a vestibular disorder and I was woke up one morning and I was at eight foot choppy seas and I would take a step and it felt like I was trampling under my foot. And I would take another step and it felt like I was in a fun house. And look at a computer screen or your smartphone, and it just would send my stomach into, you know, these retching circles. And it just was nonstop. And of course, as with anybody that has a vestibular disorder, one of the first accompanying symptoms is panic attacks and anxiety because suddenly your world is upside down quite literally and and it's there's no escape (laughs) thinking like how do I get out of this body for a second because I need a I need reprieve and with de -de debarkment there's no reprieve it's not an episodic thing it's a 24-7 you know laying down standing up the only only reprieve with it is passive motion so as soon as i get into a moving car it's not just a little bit gone it's completely gone wow. and then as soon as you get to a stoplight it comes back full force so like i've said to many people i coast at stop signs now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it it does there's no reprieve with sleep either
1: no mm -mm, no i mean in my even people in dreams not that i always dream about being on a boat but often the dreams take place with that type of motion it's just and then as soon as i wake up it's just like my nervous system has to reacquaint itself all over again with this sensation and after six years i have definitely adapted i'm you know, I'm having a really good day right now. So I would say we're on one foot seas. Um, And I, my brain can kind of ignore a lot of this. Yesterday, it was a miserable day. And I was just standing at the computer and it was just, everything was moving. Um, No rhyme or reason, but it I didn't have resources. I was a total fixer-upper. Everything in my life, you know, ballerina, straight A's, felt like I could control the universe. And this was the first thing I felt really out of control with. I'd even, you know, lost my father to a car accident when I was in high school. And I somehow was even able to package that in my brain as like something I could control, at least how I responded to it. But this was just, all-encompassing. And I isolated, as many of us do. I couldn't work. Um, I had some compassionate friends early on that were thinking it would pass, as I did, in a couple months. And then when it kept going, and year after year, I I lost friendships. I pursued so many physicians, so many physicians. I didn't even have a proper diagnosis until four years into this. Wow. So that was, I've spoken with a lot of other vestibular patients now, and many of them find a, a, a proper diagnosis early on. And that's a lifeline because then at least you have something to tell people what, what the hell is going on with you. But I thought I was just losing my mind. I mm-hmm. um, nearly lost my relationship with my husband. I moved in with my mom for seven months. I mean, I went back to, it was like, felt like an infant again um, and so frightened. I, that was when I think back to that time, I was just absolutely frightened and not frightened for my future, not frightened for what was happening You know, tomorrow. I was frightened from the experience I was having. It was like my body was torturing me. And so I was just scared basically, I didn't even have the energy to think about like, oh, what is the outcome of this? And what does this mean for my future? I was just scared to feel these feelings over and over and over and over and over again. So long story, I did start to adapt. I also started to lean more into this experience and realize I'm, there's no escape. So I better find a way to just Allow this to be part of my experience and play all kinds of tricks on my brain, like, oh, the universe is dancing with me, or whatever, <laughs> you know, all the things that I could try to get my nervous system to calm down with it. And around year four, um, my husband and I were talking about this idea of how um, our culture really wants fixes for everything. Um, they want these heroic Hollywood arcs. Um, you, you, they want the guy that's gonna climb the mountain. They don't want the one that's gonna be at the bottom and, and kind of feeling like shit, <laughs> you know? Um, and, I, and so we, we talked about like this word unfixed um, and, and how few mentors or models we had for that. However, there's a lot of people with chronic illness. In fact, one in three, one in four, I think it is, people have some form of chronic illness. One in three in the world is what it is. One in six in the US. Um, That includes diabetes and heart disease. So anyway, I I just started to put up flyers and I thought I'm gonna start finding these people and talking to them and I started locally. I found um, Dylan, who you met through one of the, through the videos. Um, He's lives here in Oregon, and I met Todd, um, the gentleman with Parkinson's. I met a few others, and I thought this, these people are incredible. I want to know more. (laughs) So um, it just it spread pretty quickly. I interviewed about 50 um, within a few months. And every time I hung up the phone after discussing their lives, um, I felt felt hope for the first time. Not hope for a cure, which is what I hung my hat on before, but I felt hope for um, all the incredible virtues that come from living a life of of disability. So that was the inception
0: of unfixed. That's amazing. Um, I think what I can, I can, I resonate with that because I I started this podcast in part because disability was always something that was there since birth for me. So I didn't, I never experienced anything else. and it was, it was something that I, you know, hiding from it, I did in, in the sense that, you know, it was present in my life when I had to go to the doctor, um, when I had to put up, when I had to get fitted for a prosthetic, when i met somebody for the first time, but I got really good um, at, Getting past that first stage of awkwardness with people and if people accepted me and I became friends with them, then we were friends and it didn't matter and the people who couldn't accept it. I wasn't friends with them. They didn't bother me. So there was like this almost bubble that I had created for myself over time, but Then it hit me, you know, in in first year of college, second year of college, and there was no escape. It's like you said, I had to I had to deal with it. There was the isolation period, the depression, the who am I and what's my place in the world and what can I actually do? Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's, and, and this podcast is just the next step of reaching out to other people who have similar experiences, different experiences, because these can, I'm learning so much from these connections. I'm learning so much from how people adapted, how people problem solved, how 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 you per, how did you persist in your journey versus what my experience looked like? So, can you talk a little bit about your adaptation process? like you know uh, where did you did was there a point in time where you really you you turned a corner at least where you said like okay, i can I can manage this. this is gonna be this is gonna be okay.
1: I don't think it was a, a moment, um, like a singular moment, but I know that um, I, I had a family member plant a seed for me around year three that said, what if you what if you have to live with this forever? Um, and that I didn't, I was really mad at her at first um, and it took a while for it to sink in. Um, I started, you know, there was this television show. I never watched it, but I, somebody had sent me a link and it was called chasing a cure. I don't even know if it's still on, but it's was somewhere, um, on TV and it, they would basically take people that had rare diseases and then they'd pair them with a bunch of physicians and they'd go on this journey with them and find the cure. And I actually pursued it and I remember getting all the way through to like the third interview and I remember sitting just in the other room there on the phone with this person who was at, down in Hollywood you know interviewing potential subjects and I hung up and I just bawled um, and I felt like I am so tired of chasing, I'm so tired of chasing a cure. I'm so tired of running away from who I am, from who I've become. And and I was missing this whole universe of community and friendship and connection and insight that was this universe over here that has grown um, because I was only focusing on the chase. So, you know, I I emailed and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And and that definitely was an interesting change shift for me to finally say no. And that doesn't mean, of course, I'm still always trying random treatments. I just tried it, I'm on a new drug trial now. It's not like I'm like, oh, (laughs) forever, (laughs) just gonna be this way, but I'm my focus is so not there anymore. It's like a try it, and if it works, it doesn't, whatever. Um, my, the turning point in my heart was when I felt a deep sense of purpose on this new path. Um, and that has just grown and grown and grown and grown. Um, so I, okay, I'll tell you, even when I just tried this, I think it was six days ago that I started this new medication. And I had this moment, Gustavo, when I took the pill before bed that I, I actually, I had to ask myself, am I ready for this to be gone? Like, what if this is the magic pill? What if it just takes it away? Cause some people go into remission. And I thought this six years and this disorder has brought so much into my life. So much abundance um, and love and, and creativity. I am not the person that I was before. And I value all of the lessons that this disorder, this demon has descended into me and caused like, wow, thank you, demon. <laughs> this is awesome. So I had to sit there for a moment and think, am I, you know, do I want it to go away? Which is just insane, absurd, because it just lays me out sometimes. And I think I'm, you know, I'm 46 and I've got probably another half of my life to live with this, holy cow. And, but I did have that moment where I'm like, wow. Or could I be still the same person now? If I got rid, if this went away, you know, I, I just had to go through all this weird stuff in my head when I took this first pill. <laughs> so far, it hasn't done
0: anything. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe you know, it's a it's a great question. It's a weighty question, and um, that's a great transition into the the what if video that you posted right uh, on Unfixed, which was, I mean. I haven't seen anybody else talk about that. I think it's such an important question. Um, I would love to dive into that with you. Like, yeah, what if tomorrow disability goes away? And and then essentially the, the prompt that you gave them was, what if tomorrow the disability goes away, but I forget everything that I learned during this Process, would you would you take that? And I mean, the answers were they varied in some really interesting ways. But like, how how do how would you answer that prompt? And I'm happy to answer it too. But I'm want to hear
1: your yes. I want to hear your re- reply. Um, I would say no. Um, I would absolutely say no. I wouldn't trade all of the lessons I've learned to make this go away forever. I am willing to suffer with this um, for the rest of my life, given what it's given me. What is given me is greater, even though the suffering is great. Um, and like I said, prior to you asking the question, it's it really, um, the growing of my heart, <laughs> Uh, there is a great quote by Andrew Solomon. He wrote a book called Far From the Tree um, and he extensively researched children that were born into families and these children had um, unusual disabilities, unusual circumstances. They, some of them had disabilities, some of them were homicidal, some, you know, like they fell far from the tree. Um, but it was you know a lot of things that can go wrong in the human body and he and his partner decided to adopt um, during that period while he was researching this book and some of his friends were like Andrew why would you adopt you know you're learning about all the horrible things that can happen to a human life Um, and you're gonna just go for it and he said this isn't a book about all the things that can go wrong in the human body, this is a book about the love that is possible when things do go wrong. And I will never, ever, ever forget that quote. Um, He has a really, it's actually, he probably says it even better, but it's in a TED Talk. So if you wanna Google that, Andrew Solomon TED Talk, he talks about it in there. But I thought, oh, that's it. The capacity of the heart grows with these experiences. And no, I would not trade that for anything.
0: So what about you? That's a great answer. So the question, the way you posed it, my answer would be no. Um, for, for many reasons. I think w- the main reason is that um, even within the constraints of my body, I have never felt that I have reached the limits of what I can do. And so what is there to possibly be ungrateful for? Like what else could I possibly want if I haven't even pushed myself to all Mm -hmm. of my limits? Wow. Wow, what a
1: great way of looking at it. Yeah, you're limitless. And, and until you feel like you've reached that limit and these, and within this avenue of your disability, that I almost feel like, as you probably have experienced talking to other podcast podcast guests, but there's an ingenuity and problem solving that, I mean, you, you hand a, a kid a whole box of crayons, they're just going to make a mess, <laughs> you know, <laughs> give them a couple crayons. And maybe on, like, what you're saying is that, you know, disability gives us, takes away some of those crayons, but boy, we have to get a lot more creative then.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, if you, if you, but I think there's also, it's interesting, right? Because this concept of unfixed is incredible. Um, It's so true. And, And it's so important to focus on the idea that we're not that it doesn't even matter if we're fixable or not fixable like we are we are here this is what we're working with just give us the opportunity to express to participate to show to to be a part of of life um, because like you said our, there's so much that we can do that i think people don't society is not structured to really turn that lever yet and hopefully we'll get there soon. But there's, there's three kind of buckets, right? That I've seen lately where it's like the bucket number one of how to make things better for people with disabilities is better laws, better advocacy. Then there's a second bucket that kind of says, it's economic, we need to create more economic opportunities. We need to give people better employment, et cetera, better healthcare. And then there's a third bucket that feels like a minority um, that says, you know what, until we can change the way we perceive disability and think about disability and understand disability, what are we really accomplishing? Because the second somebody can bend a law or get around a law, if they're not on board with us, they're going to do that. If there, If there's, you know, a way to skirt investment or economic opportunity because they're uncomfortable around disability, they will, they will find a way to do that. Like all three of those buckets are tremendously important. But I I it feels like where you and I really align is in that third bucket of we have to change the perception first. Or at least mm-hmm. concomitantly, but it's like the it's the it's the primary root of the change.
1: Yeah. I agree and, and you know, it's just an invitation. If anybody that is like, oh, I don't wanna to listen to Gustavo's podcast because it scares me or I don't wanna watch the unfixed videos because it, oh, it reminds me of like what I might be someday. It's uh, what our work is, is an invitation. And if somebody takes those 10 minutes or those 30 minutes to just be present, I can almost guarantee you they'll walk away feeling better, but they have to get through the door first.
0: Yes, and they have to do that, that awkwardness door.
1: Mm-hmm. The awkwardness door and the the us and them door. I, I like the word unfixed because you know, guess what? We're all unfixed. <laughs> We're all gonna die. This isn't just about disability and chronic illness. This is, I mean. I have a, you know, family member who has challenges with their teenage son. I, you know, we have people losing their homes in wildfires right now. These are, there are things that are really hard to fix. And every one of us is going to encounter encounter something like that in our lives. So it's not a huge leap of imagination to go, I can learn from these people. And the cool thing about people with disability is that it's it's not time bound i mean they are dealing with this every minute of every day so let's listen to them Mm -hmm. you know let's put them up on a soapbox and go how do you do it because they have they have a lot of answers
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's so true and the the thing uh, i think what the two people who I was most captivated by in the videos. I, I'm sure it's different for everybody. Um, the first one was Dylan. I mean, what a rem- uh, what a remarkable human being. Um, what what were your biggest takeaways as you got to spend time with him? For me, you spent way more time with him, so I'm I'm really interested. But his intellect and his he blends like this enormous intellect with this poetic way of expressing himself that is so authentic and so beautiful. I just wanna, like, I can just listen to him all day.
1: Oh, okay, I'm sending this to him. I, I just talked about him with um, Faye last week and she asked how, cause I, I actually got to film Dylan in person three times um, with the whole film crew when we thought we were, you know, this was pre-pandemic and we thought we were doing a documentary. Um, and she said because dylan is quadriplegic he can't use his mouth he can't eat with his mouth he his only communication device is his eyes so even his voice is automated it's not his voice and she said what was that like because when you interview you want to engage with your subjects and and i i thought that was such a great question I, I actually just started crying because I was recalling the experiences we had with him. He had all of us in tears, and we were not—we were listening to a robot voice answering questions that he had pre-recorded because you know it would take too much time for the motion eye tracking device. But he transcends the disability, the the inability to move his. Big blue eyes communicate everything. And I, if you probably experienced that even in the videos, you know, he, he can't, there's nothing moving. And, and actually, there was one video where some of the ability, he likes, he likes to be able to smile. That was another, he had some movement here. And um, he's starting to lose some of that movement there. And he was really scared about that loss because it was a, a yet another way to communicate with a human being so that they don't just look at him and feel pity. Yeah. Um, he is radiant and, and in struggling. I, we text a lot, um, you know, almost weekly and uh, he's not in an awesome living situation. He struggles with his caregivers. He, he depends on everything from, you know, to get through his day and it's not optimal. So he's not, you know, (laughs) Susie sunshine all the time. Um, But he will also say in the same breath that all he ever wanted was to, um, I don't want to use the word enlightened, but to reach his fullest potential as a soul on this planet. And for him, he thought that was through Aikido. And then when you know that fell through, he thought it was through becoming a physician. And then when the ALS came, he, he realized, well, this is, this is my vehicle then. If I'm still gonna stick to the same goal of becoming the most radiant human being that I can possibly be, then I have to see ALS as my teacher. For that, and and, and the, you know, one moment he's cursing it, and the next moment he's going, "Wow, uh, uh, okay." <laughs> um, I, I almost want to connect the two of you. You know, we did a podcast with him. It was unusual because he had to pre-record everything, but um, I think the two of you could have a really uh, exciting conversation together. He's a, just a dear human being
0: it comes across and I'm just how, how did you like these what you filmed some of this during the pandemic and people are using their phones and and pre-recording but like how did you you were able to put it together in such a way or direct them with the angles and the lighting and because it just it felt so polished and it felt so so like intentional, like how did you manage to do that remotely that you have to be one of the few filmmakers on planet earth that have, made, that have pulled this off, right? There haven't been a, other people that have done this like this. Well,
1: I think you're being very generous. I, I have gotten some dirty laundry in the background <laughs> of our shots. Um, I Well, authentic. Mia Allen is my,
0: authentic. sorry, authentic. go ahead. It's authentic though.
1: Oh I, yeah, you're right, you're right. Right. Um, Mia Allen is my co-producer and she actually we've developed this wonderful creative relationship over the years and she I brought her on early on and she created a, a cool 12 minute video that we sent out to all the subjects and it was basically just filmmaking 101 with your smartphones you know don't don't have it down here and don't have it vertical and face the window light and you know just kind of the basics um, and for the most part, they, they follow it. I think, you know, sometimes it's 20 months now, so they've gotten a little lazy and we get <laughs> some, you know, wind in the shots and, <laughs> um, but I, I actually think people are capable of this more than, more than we, you know, these are really powerful devices and so we can continue to tell these stories in a really powerful, sort of effective way. And with time, what I've noticed is they've just become that much more comfortable um, just sharing. Uh, They and oh, and then, you know, the other thing is I I also send my own responses to them. So they feel like they're not sending it into a black box. whether or not they watch them, I don't know. But I, I send them, put them up on YouTube in a private playlist and they can see me and my response um, as well. And I think that has helped them feel less um, like a subject and more like they're part of uh, a family.
0: Yeah, it, it feels that way. It feels that way. It's such an interesting project. Um, I'm curious to ask you if we were to kind of shift the what if question kind of 20 millimeters in another direction, right? And say, what if What if tomorrow your disability could go away and you would retain your lessons and your memory and your consciousness of who you were, but the disability would no longer be there How would you you approach that question?
1: Hmm. Well, that's a little bit like I was thinking when I took this new drug. Um, There would be grieving, strangely enough. There would be, it's as um, Elizabeth, um, who you probably met through the videos too, she has multiple sclerosis. She's uh, in her 60s, really passionate exceptional human being. And she talks about her MS as her friend. Um, and, you know, especially with these disabilities and chronic illness, we do experience isolation and we do experience loneliness. So our, our conditions become our friends in a way. They are our enemies too, but they also, they're always with us. I mean, Who's more loyal than that? (laughs) They're always there. (laughs) So waking up and having it gone, there would be grief. If I don't know if I would say no to that, but I would make sure that I would spend every goddamn rest of my days on this planet to make sure that every other human being Feels heard, feels valued, feels uplifted by their own disabilities and their own conditions. Because, well, you know, the grace of being able to be cured and then retain all of those lessons—like, come on, you've got to do something with that, then, (laughs) right?
0: That would be a tremendous responsibility. You're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you? So if if you ask me the question today, the answer would be I don't think I would do it again because I haven't reached my own limits yet. But I can see my answer changing in ten years, or if I'm lucky enough, twenty years, thirty years, whatever that looks like. I can see that answer changing. Um, And there's some there's some selfishness there, but I think it's also just a a curiosity, right? Like I've never felt from college on through meditation and some different experiences, I've never really felt like super attached to my body per se. I've always been attached to my mind and my consciousness. And so I would like to, if I can, like we don't have this ability yet as human beings, but if I can, if I can experience another body, I would be interested to learn what the, what are those experiences like? What lessons could I learn from? And it doesn't have, we don't even have to think of it as like, you know, able-bodied, you know, what if I could take, I don't know, the form of a big cat or, you know, uh, another gender or an able-bodied person. Like there'd be so much, there's so much curiosity there in me just to experience different, different forms that I would, if I could experience those things, I would, I think I would do that. Um, and I, and I don't want to stop, right? I don't want to die until at least my curiosity is satiated. So it's very selfish, but that's how I look at it. Uh, and fortunately we don't have that, that capacity yet technologically. So, um, I think the important part is just, moving through the stages with as much grace as we can and keeping those adaptation muscles as strong as the, as we can as we can be and just keep exercising them and keep working with it and knowing that there's new lessons and new things to learn and experience
1: absolutely and the, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the word curiosity that that when the curiosity dies then there's not much left. I feel like as long, and I've heard Dylan use that word, I've heard Elizabeth use that word, when we can become curious about our experience, drop the judgment, drop the future thinking and the past thinking and the self-pity, and just be curious about this extraordinary life experience that is hitting all the marks of, you know, extreme suffering to Extreme ecstasy and and like to say no to that is to say no to to what what our life force wants to on some level experience. I would say. Yeah.
0: So I'm. Yeah. And there's so much. I just there's so much potential in what you're doing and and those the people who are have opened themselves up so much to be vulnerable to show that vulnerability to show. It's okay like yes there's pain yes there's suffering yes there's difficulty but it's okay I still like my life we're we're fine right we're still we're getting through this and I think the more people that can understand that yeah spark that curiosity and say like how does that work like how is that possible I don't get it well then like you said it's an invitation to dive in Mhm yeah it people's eyes
1: yeah Yeah, because wow there's so much potential there then because the other then in a way we become fearless you know i'm not saying we're like superheroes or anything but Mm -hmm. i'm not really that scared of physical pain anymore it's just it's sort of like that when that experience just pummels you over and over and over again you're like well (laughs) okay i survived and, and on some of those days I was even still laughing and still smiling and it's, it, it's almost, um, you become a little schizophrenic almost. Like, well, I can be having this experience and I can be joyful. Not always, but sometimes those two can totally coexist, which is a wild, Thing um, from the outside, fix it, able-bodied world. You'd think, oh, not you know, misery, constant misery, because you think, and that's why they want to avoid it, because they don't understand that there is the it's just so much more. Um, there's a relationship between opposites happening all the time.
0: Yeah buddhism really helped me understand that um not just psychologically but you know in my heart in my gut because it embraces that idea of stop making those distinctions or don't get so attached to those distinctions it's both and right it's Mm -hmm. you don't have to it's it's an illusion to think we have to maximize pleasure and minimize pain right it's it's both and they're, they're so intertwined and interrelated, just like life and death, just like pretty much everything we experience. It's this jumbled, messy, incomplete thing that we make of it what we will.
1: I'll tell you a funny story. Um, this is embarrassing a little bit. Um, but I was an unusual child and I think I was around 12, 11 or 12, and my parents did a firewalking experience. They were, you know, kind of hippies in the '70s, late hippies, and um, they brought home a book by this gentleman named Tolly Birkin. And I just, I kind of was just obsessed with it. And I wasn't able to firewalk, but I, I remember reading the book, and it was kind of talking about how if you can neutralize the uh, projection of what, our, our, what we assume pain to be, uh, either good or bad, you can neutralize that and just relax your nervous system and allow it to be, some of those people would walk across the coals without having burned feet. I don't know about all those theories, but regardless, I thought I'm going to conduct my own experiment. <laughs> I wanted to see if I could bypass the, the pain being bad situation so I walked around the house outside we had all these like wood stumps and I decided I was going to stub my toe over and over and over again (laughs) and every time I did I would just I remember just throwing my foot at it and I in my head I was just over and over saying intense sensation this is just an intense sensation it's not good or it's not bad it's just an intense sensation (laughs) and i had just bloody feet i and i and i was too young to kind of i think i i thought i my experiment had failed because i somehow thought that if i had done it right then my feet would also be like perfect and i wouldn't be bloody and swollen Um, In hindsight, I think it was an interesting experiment because I I was really curious about having a physical experience that could not be uh, reacted to. Um, And it's what I'm doing all the time with my physical sensation of the dizziness. It's like, am I falling over? No, is it uncomfortable? Yes, but I can also just allow it to, to be not terrible either. And when that happens, then my nervous system can at least relax and be chill with it. Um, so weird how <laughs> our childhood experiences, it might've been a little bit of a, a prescient moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great story. I. I uh it's a it's true I mean for me that was I found that with meditation. It's just when you know uh, too much walking one day or I pushed my body too hard um because my right hip is fused that was that's a weak point in my body. um I have to use like the a lot of secondary muscles to you know most people use those secondary muscles to For balance, I use them for both balance and to move, so they wear down quicker. Um, So they would spasm, especially when I was at, you know, periods of time I was in great shape, periods of time I was in awful shape, Um, and they would spasm, and I I would, and I'd have to stop, you know, stop walking, rest, get back up and, you know, keep going. but i found that through through meditation i could i could calm that down for quite a bit of time and i the more i worked on it there was a limit but the the sensation of pain didn't didn't stop like i could keep going for longer until at some point you know our bodies have limits and it just stops and you have to stop but it didn't it didn't bother me. I didn't get angry about it. I didn't get frustrated. I didn't, you know,
1: Well, let me ask you, what's the entry point for you. And so you say the meditation, how would you, okay, you're starting to feel the agitation in your body or the muscle pain. What's your very first thing that you would do?
0: It's all in the breathing.
1: In the breathing. Yeah. And just creating space. Is the breathing creating space around it or is it, it's not even that. It's just the breathing.
0: I so, or I didn't learn like formally from any teacher. Um, I was studying Buddhism in graduate school at the time, and I I got to talk to some, a couple of Buddhist monks and and pick their brains, and I read books, and so it was just uh, Zen Zen meditation focus. So you don't actually breathe. Um, through your chest, you're breathing in and out just through your stomach muscles. And it takes some practice to get used to it. But when you do it enough, even as you're walking, there's almost like this ball of energy that forms in your in your lower lower abdomen, in your stomach. And when you focus on that energy, the sensation of pain diminishes, especially as you slow your breathing down and and you really compress your your lower abdomen in. Um, there's just it's it's this energy in your gut that just uh, that you can just focus in on, and the pain just kind of it does it just doesn't it's there, but it doesn't bother you.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, there's so many different approaches. Like in qigong, um, in Chinese medicine, they call it the dantian. Um, Dylan has talked about that Um, for me my entry point is curiosity I found Pema Chodron has been one of my big teachers she's a Buddhist monk and one of her books is called the wisdom of no escape Um, and it's when I'm getting agitated and feeling the movement too much my for whatever reason my if I have an ounce of resistance even if, even if it's a breathing technique, that's like, okay, I'm just going to open to this so that, um, it will go away. If I have a ounce of a thought towards that, it doesn't work for whatever reason, how I'm wired. So I have to just completely dive in and let the experience pummel me and come just let it be, um, and become curious about it. So my, entry point you said is breath and mine is curiosity of just going okay welcome here you are <laughs> and then the breathing can open up and then the space around it can open up um but for whatever reason if i resist it just a little bit it's like my brain knows it's like ha i got you you're doing this so that it goes away right okay. and then it doesn't work <laughs>
0: that's an amazing entry point though that's a really I'm gonna I'm gonna practice that and read that because that's a that's a very interesting technique and it makes a lot of sense right it's the it's the struggle that when we struggle against something we end up struggling more you don't conquer it you know you accept it and let it in and then you can actually work with it
1: Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely The Wisdom of No Escape, if you haven't read it, it's a small little book and I just adore, I adore it.
0: Thank you for that, that's amazing. Yeah. Is there anything that I missed, Kim, before we wrap up that you'd love to talk about?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, I could talk for hours with you. I just wanna know, um, do you have any, furry pets in your life do you do you who who are your companions daily companions
0: uh i mean i'm close with my family um mom brother brother has three children and young children um two daughters and a little boy and they're just amazing and i have some close friends i have no pets i am a dog lover so i love 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 dogs but um there's just not uh, the time in my life right now for, for a dog. And I've never, I've never been, I think when I was young, I was allergic to cats. So I was never really drawn to them. And, and just that, I think just that, you know, unconditional love of a dog and just the happiness and spending time with them and just the. Uh, the, that bond of loyalty that you can form is has always been something that I've that I've loved and I've always understood. Dogs like when there was a dog barking at me when I was young, I was fearless. My parents would get scared. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, no, no. I've read I've read some books about it. I know what to do. And just, you know, you go up to the dog without any. Obviously, if there are certain dogs that you know you you stay away from, but you approach the dog without fear and gently and kindly and and just feel its energy you become friends pretty quickly
1: yeah yeah so true I I like hearing people's um support teams you know I think care teams are are really the, the the invisible forces in our lives and and some of us don't have big ones Um, And sometimes it's not even a human. Sometimes it's an animal. Sometimes it's a a book, a a spiritual leader. It's just interesting to me um, because I think, you know, obviously you are are, are taking your experiences of this life to another level and you're sharing those experiences with the world. And I, I have to imagine your mom and your siblings and your nieces and nephews, all of those people are are a big part of who you are
0: today. Absolutely, close friends that I stay in touch with, that we hang out with. I've been in the the sense of like, within my constraints and disability, um, I've lived independently for a long time. So, you know, I drive, I have a business, your audio video with my brother. I'm pretty independent. but the support structure, for sure is important. I do need you know certain things here and there which are which are helpful but i've since uh I think i learned I learned that in college you know i went I grew up in Los Angeles I went to school in Chicago and had to adapt to a dorm room in a building that was built in the 1920s that was not very friendly and so guess what you have to ask friends for help and mm-hmm you find your way
1: I heard a best quote the other day Um, this was pertaining to chronic illness but it can you know relate to disability in general it's uh, um, with disability sometimes your friends become strangers and strangers become friends yeah yeah I think all of us can can relate to that and our circles keep growing
0: they do they do because um we're putting the work in to grow them, right? And we're yeah. we're being open enough to to connect with people, which is which is so important. And I just I if there's something I wish I could communicate with people who are non-disabled, it's there's so much fear of judgment, of expectations, of um, Just, just fear of what other people are gonna think of me, what other people are gonna say, uh, what my status is in society, and I just wish I could, you know, open their minds for two seconds and say like, ninety-five percent of that doesn't matter. Just go be you. Mm -hmm. You are saying that. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you are. You are you don't have to wish. You are saying that. And slowly slowly I think people will open their eyes. I I've, I've, I've had family members even had their their eyes opened um in the work that I've been doing and and it's it's not easy, but it if the willingness is there, their hearts open.
0: Absolutely. Can you give us a preview of what's next for you and where people can find you and connect with you?
1: Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, we have a new mini series coming out. I've been partnering with um, a vestibular organization called Veda, um, and we are on our fifth. Currently, making our fifth episode, five of six, and those are going to be released mid August, um, one a week and they'll be on the Disorder Channel, which you can access. I don't know if you're familiar with the Disorder Channel, but it's, you can access it through um, Amazon Fire or Roku. And they have incredible feature films, documentary films. They show all the unfixed films on there, um, all pertaining to chronic conditions, disability, and rare diseases. So they're fantastic. And all of those episodes will be there. And they'll also be eventually on YouTube Um, and I'm working on a project with Elizabeth, who is one of the unfixed subjects. She, um, had a vision to create a dialogue between four people who have MS and, um, every month, every second Wednesday of the month, these four super dynamic, hilarious, very engaging humans get together and they talk. I mean, I think two weeks ago they were talking about sex, they were talking about drugs. I mean, they go for it and it's kind of no holds barred. Um, and that's been really fun. My vision for next year, um, I'm hoping to get some helpful fundraisers to join on board, but I really wanna do another mini series focusing on mental health disorders. Um, I think our, our country uh, our whole world, but you know, our, we've heard a lot of stories of the mental health crisis um, since the pandemic. And so I really want to focus on some of these stories, these anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, and get kind of, these are unfixed journeys that um, a lot of us go through and um, wanna dig in a little deeper with that um it's just my my five-year plan is keeps growing so i'll stop there
0: (laughs) Uh, that sounds super exciting i'm going to have to pick up a roku um it's really why does apple not have this channel yet
1: right yeah i know i'm believe me every day i'm just pulling my hair out i i I want to go back to the original idea of going house to house now that you know, I'm vaccinated and a lot of the subjects are vaccinated, going to these people's homes and doing episodes where we talk with them for 30 minutes. I mean, I've sent letters to Oprah, I've sent letters to Barack and Michelle Obama, I've sent letters to Hillary and Jill. I've sent so many, like, hey guys, can we get this onto Apple TV? Um, nothing yet, but I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not convinced that somebody isn't gonna say, hey, there's something here. And then it could be, an, you know, this could go on forever, Gustavo. We could meet and do an episode hanging out in your place and all the incredible lives that um, deserve at least 30 minutes, right? <laughs> at least a 30 minute episode. <laughs>
0: Have you ever thought about filming yourself in an episode.
1: You know, like I said, I do the private ones um, to the to the subjects, but and Faye has been encouraging me recently to get out more and doing. I, I'm, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I'm a little bit of that farm girl like don't focus on yourself kind of mentality. And um, and there's so much of that now with social media that um, I don't want to get distracted by, you know, if it feels like it's important, yes, I will. Um, so far, my my farm girl attitude has been keeping me hiding behind the camera.
0: <laughs> Fair, well, maybe one day you won't. And I mean, I'm just, You've got a new fan anything that you would like me to collaborate on I would absolutely love and be completely gung ho don't even don't even have to think twice about so just um it is just i I love doing this I love connecting with people and you are you are just a remarkable human being I'm so happy we met I'm so happy that I got a chance to experience your work and I'm just really looking forward to helping and seeing what else, you know, what other beautiful projects you can bring to the world.
1: Me too, Gustavo. I'm so in love with you and your work and your passion. And let's say that this isn't goodbye. Let's just, this is to be continued because I have a feeling we have some work to do together. So I I can't wait to get some cameras on you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Kim.